0: The ACBE Forum, volume 62, August, 2023, number two. Published by the American Council of the Blind. Read by Nancy Gahagan, Thomasine Berg, and Tom Hannold in the recording studio of the Perkins Library. Be a part of ACB. The American Council of the Blind, trademark, is a membership organization made up of more than 70 state and special interest affiliates. For the latest in legislative and governmental news, call the Washington Connection 24-7 at 1-800-424-8666 or read it online. Listen to ACB reports by downloading the MP3 file from www.acb.org or call 518-906-1820 and choose Option 8. Tune in to ACB Media at www.acbmedia.org or by calling 518-906-1820. Learn more about us at www.acb.org, follow us on Twitter at ACB National, or like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com acbnational Copyright 2023 American Council of the Blind Dan Spoon Interim Executive Director Sharon Lovering Editor 225 Reinekers Lane Suite 660 Alexandria, Virginia 22314 Table of Contents President's Message Memorable Travel by Deb Cook-Lewis Thanks to you, the ACB Summer Auction was a success. By Leslie Spoon. Disneyland by Tony Ames. Mad Dogs, Bad Dogs, and a Tale of Two Booties by Janet Danola Parmiter. Our Unforgettable France Experience by Katie Frederick with Vicki Prayan. My Trip to Germany by Jean Mann. An Anarchist's Handy Cassette by Peter Heide. To take out or not to take out? That is the question by Janet Denola Permiter. Accessibility and Video Games. All Ages Gaming for People with Disabilities. Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. Upcoming Forum Themes and Deadlines. October 2023. Employment, Vocational Rehabilitation, Training, White Cane Safety Day. Deadline, August 25, 2023. November 2023. Audio Description Project. Deadline, September 25, 2023. December 2023. International Relations Committee. Deadline, October 24, 2023. Are you moving? Do you want to change your subscription? Contact Sharon Lovering in the ACB National Office, 1-800-424-8666 or via email. S-L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G at acb.org. Give her the information, and she'll make the changes for you. President's Message Memorable Travel by Deb Cook-Lewis My most fond travel memory goes all the way back to the summer between 6th and 7th grade. In my 6th grade class, we were asked to research a county of our choice in Washington State. There are 39 counties, and we had 24 students, so plenty to go around. My curiosity has always been high, so I chose one I had never heard of, called Asotan County. There was no internet back then, and I had no accessible tech to assist with my research. I typed a letter to the Chamber of Commerce, explaining that I needed to learn about this unknown county. I received back a lot of print materials, complete with pictures, and a very nice personal letter, inviting me to visit someday, and to please stop in if I do. Fast forward to summer. I was in a summer program for blind junior high students, which was staffed by classroom teachers from the public school system who were getting their summer credits by doing something with us. Most of the teacher-student groups did pretty boring stuff, but my group, which consisted of two teachers and me, took a trip to the east side of our state to explore for a week. It would take more space than Sharon allows for me to tell you all of my experiences on this trip but because of my previous research and the invitation, we included a stop in a Soton county. We met all the dignitaries and visited the courthouse. They were delighted that a kid from the west side would pick their tiny county to do my report and treated me like I was someone, which doesn't take much when you're talking to a kid. Of course, as we were leaving, they said to come back whenever I could. Little did they know. My parents bought a summer home in Clarkston which is the largest town in Asotin County. That was not related in any way to my having written the report 50 years earlier. In fact, I'm sure they didn't remember that. But five years ago, my husband and I moved to Clarkston to be near my dad after my mom's passing. And here I am, back in Asotin County. I find it really interesting that it has gone full circle from my research and travel adventure. You never know where life's twists and turns will take you. Thanks to you, the ACB Summer Auction was a success. Thank you to everyone who participated in the 17th Annual ACB Summer Auction. We appreciate all of the wonderful donations from affiliates, vendors, members, and friends of ACB. There were more than 170 items up for bid, including homemade goodies, jewelry, technology, and crafts. Once again, thanks for supporting the ACB Summer Auction. Stay tuned for the ACB Media Holiday Auction. Happy Bidding. Leslie Spoon Disneyland. Submitted by Tony Ames. Author's note. This is somewhat outdated, but still a fun article. End of note. Last weekend, we entertained a special guest. Ember is the six-month-old golden retriever puppy being raised by our friends Alicia and Andy Bone, guide dogs of the desert. The bones read for us on a weekly basis, and Ember has been a frequent visitor since her arrival in Fresno at the age of 10 weeks. Ember loves visiting us. She can play with the many dog toys scattered throughout the house, play tug-of-war with Ed's guide dog Kirby, or cuddle for a nap with Tony's guide dog, Ivy. Occasionally, she gets into trouble when she chases Disney, Cameo, or Kimmel our cats, but this is part of basic training for a future guide dog. Andy and Alicia rented a furnished apartment on the coast for a needed weekend getaway. They wanted to take Ember with them because they tried to expose her to as many social situations as possible. However, the owners of the apartment would not rent to families with pets. They did not recognize Ember's special status as a puppy being raised to pursue a working career as a guide dog. Unlike several other states, California does not extend rights of access to guide dog puppies. As we sat at our dining room table enjoying our dinner, the three golden retrievers lay quietly at our feet. Pretending to speak for Ivy and Kirby, we told Ember what the life of a guide dog would be like. Sometimes you have to lie quietly on a long train or airplane trip. Sometimes you have to be serious and conscientious while guiding your partner through crowds and across streets. Sometimes you will have to lie under a table while delectable food passes over your head. You can never chase cats or squirrels while working. However, being a guide dog is not all work. You get to go everywhere with your partner and can even disregard no pets allowed signs. Because you will graduate from guide dogs of the desert, you will even get to go to Disneyland. Disneyland, a name that symbolizes magic, fantasy, frolic, and family fun, is beloved by young and old, human, and guide dog. This world-famous theme park was the star attraction for us in planning an exciting American vacation for two teenage cousins, Robert and Craig Martinus, sons of British friends. For us, Disneyland's appeal was intensified by its close connection with guide dogs of the desert. When Ed was in training with Kirby in December 1989, the school hosted a picnic for employees of Disneyland who were active fundraisers for Desert. Tony, who was visiting that weekend, participated in the picnic with the students in training. All of the Disneyland employees we met impressed us with their warmth, friendliness, and dedication to their fundraising efforts. They responded with obvious pleasure to our plans to visit in June with our British guest. Our Disneyland adventure began when Matt Blatty, the publicity coordinator, met us at the front gate. Matt, a delightful and vivacious young man, initiated us into the wonders of Disneyland with introductions to Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. Ivy and Kirby basked in the attention they received from Donald and Mickey. All hearing, service, and guide dogs with their partners are welcome visitors at Disneyland. If disabled people visiting the park prefer leaving their dogs in a safe, clean, comfortable place, air-conditioned kennels are available for $5 a day. These facilities are also available to pet owners traveling with their dogs. Ivy and Kirby curled up and slept through rides such as Small World, Jungle Cruise, and The Submarine. However, their golden retriever instincts were aroused by the sight of ducks in the water as we rode on the Mark Twain paddle boat. Ed, Robert, and Craig enjoyed rides such as the Matterhorn, Space Mountain, and Splash Mountain, while Tony and the dogs sat on nearby benches. Concerned Disneyland employees, seeing Tony and the dogs sweltering in the hot sun, offered the dogs water several times throughout the day. What a role reversal. Usually, the dogs implore to share our food with them. This time, Tony yearned to share their drinking water. In December 1987, Chuck Abbott, foreman at the Matterhorn, and his wife Norma, employed at Stromboli's, organized a fundraising effort among the 8,000 employees. Since then, they have raised close to $30,000 for Desert. Ginger Fleming, a security hostess, described the variety of their fundraising projects. Employees run raffles and hold bake and garage sales. As participants in the Guide Dogs of the Desert Walkathon in Palm Springs, they raised more than $2,000. Employees collect cans and other recyclable materials. Not only is this a major source of funds for desert, but it also helps keep the park immaculate. Even the public bathrooms are clean at Disneyland. A unique source of funds is the collection of loose change lost by guests on the turbulent rides. As a result of the workers' fundraising activities, two guide dogs, Cherokee and King, have been sponsored by Disneyland employees. They are working toward sponsorship of a third guide dog-blind person partnership. Some funds have been used to improve the facilities at Desert, such as the remodeling of the garage into staff offices. Kennel improvement and expansion are future goals. Several employees who have attended the emotional graduations at Guide Dogs of the Desert, when puppy raisers symbolically present the puppies they have raised to the graduating blind students, have gotten hooked on raising guide dog puppies. Spanny, a golden retriever, is being raised by Richard and Patty Farron. Patty is an attraction hostess at the Matterhorn. Susan and Wayne Martin, former Disneyland employees, continue to raise Clipper, another golden puppy. German Shepherd dog Gisa is the guide dog puppy of Lee Williams, bartender at Club 33. One of the newest links in the desert Disney relationship is a visit to Disneyland by each class as a regular part of its month-long training program. Ed and Kirby missed out on this innovative part of the training because it was initiated after their graduation. These class visits to Disneyland serve several purposes. The dogs in training are exposed to large crowds, noisy children, and tempting food distractions. Blind students, many of whom may live in small towns or rural areas, have the opportunity to work with their dogs in a setting similar to a large city. Members of the public, many of whom may never have seen a working guide dog, have the opportunity to observe a working team. This public education function is very important. Finally, employees of Disneyland, who may have had little contact with the dogs they are helping support, can see the fruits of their efforts. Mad Dogs, Bad Dogs, and A Tale of Two Booties by Janet tanola Parmiter. Now that summer is near, though COVID previously put a damper on traveling overseas, I thought I'd share a bit of travel talk. First, let's discuss an attitude of some people in third-world countries. When you really need help, don't act like an entitled American. People may be indifferent about work or helping a foreigner get things done. People like to feel important, so use the words, Oh, please, I really need help. Are you the one who can help me? It never ceases to amaze me when people feel they have the power, they are more willing to prove that power by helping. It is amazing how those few words cause someone to reply, Yes, I am the one who can do it. I have seen that work many, many times. Then what about the reputation of American travelers? Being in the travel industry for over 40 years, I must admit, Americans don't have a great reputation for tolerance. Unfortunately, with regards to almost everything, including accessibility issues, many Americans think the world should be on an equal plane with the United States. Some travelers cannot understand why ice is not added to drinks. Why butter is not put on the table with bread. Why shops close in the middle of the day. Why people dine with their pet dogs. And last, but not the very least, why everyone does not speak English. Of all the comments written by travel writers, my favorite line was written by Sidney Clark. His exact words were, Americans walk the face of the earth expecting universal mastery of the English language to precede them wherever they go. In that one sentence, Sidney Clark beautifully summed up the attitude of numerous inexperienced travelers. Having been an international tour guide for decades, I would be rich if I had a dollar for every time I heard an American tourist say, don't let them kid you, they know exactly what you're saying. But the truth is, they don't really know what you are saying. The only exception to that rule may be in France. In addition, too many times American tourists expect everything to be just like home. Far too often I have heard comments like, at home we get, or at home we do this or that, or at home it's not like this. As a tour guide who loves historic and charming European cities, walking the narrow cobblestone streets of a 15th century city with 18-inch wide sidewalks can be frustrating. Not because the sidewalks are so tiny and a small truck may brush against your shopping bag, but from listening to uninformed visitors complain about the sidewalks. They fail to realize that the streets were made for walking, and perhaps a horse or two. So in the 20th century, those few inches are all they could take away from the street to allow the small, modern-day cars and trucks to drive on the narrow, cobblestone street. Therefore, before considering a trip overseas, I offer two suggestions. First, buy flat, crepe-soled shoes to prevent twisting your ankle on the cobblestone streets. Then order some books to learn about wherever your dream trip will take you. If you are an educated, knowledgeable tourist, you will not be easily blindsided by the inevitable, yet unexpected, different situations. When I was 18 years old, I was in Europe for the very first time and wanted to prove I was all grown up. I wanted to use the restroom alone, but failed on my first attempt. Blaming my poor eyesight, or perhaps my Italian was worse than I thought, I returned to the table and once again asked the waiter for the second time where the restroom was. This time I felt sure I understood the directions, but once again, there wasn't any restroom. The third time I asked, the handsome waiter walked me right to the same door I just came from, pointed to the sign which read W.C., and said, Cabinetto, and walked away. Did W.C. mean Woman's Cabinet? I was so confused, so I went into the room supposing there might be another door inside, but there was nothing. At this point, my bladder was telling me if I didn't immediately find the restroom, the WC would mean wet clothes. I had no other choice but to go back to the table and ask my parents for help. My mother took me right back to the same door and explained that WC meant water closet. Now I was ready to cry and moaned, But, Mommy, I've been in there three times, and it's not a bathroom. Calmly, she took me inside, pointed to the floor, and said, Do you see those two ceramic feet? Put one foot on each, squat down, and aim for the hole in the floor, and try not to wet on your shoes. I was stunned. I returned to the table a bit embarrassed, but my shoes were dry. That experience was the beginning of my learning to accept, embrace, and love the differences of other countries. As for individuals with special challenges and service animals, much of Europe is ready, willing, and able to help with both. To assist travelers with special needs, Rick Steves wrote a wonderful book, which includes an excellent rating scale for accessibility levels and the helpfulness of hotels, restaurants, and tourist attractions. Still, in European restaurants, it is not unusual to see pet dogs, not service dogs, inside restaurants alongside their owner's chair. Being a tour group director, I was accustomed to the European experience of dining with dogs, but that was not so for my American clients. One evening, after skiing Mont Blanc in Chamonix, France, for dinner I brought my tour group to a quaint little French bistro. Our group used almost every table. Only about three tables had other patrons. Under the table nearest mine, someone's large, furry pet dog was quietly sleeping. All of a sudden, the dog lifted its head— Glared out from under the floor length tablecloth and began a low, constant growl. At first, many of my American clients were surprised by the unleashed and growling dog under the next table, but when the low growl turned into full blown barking, they became a bit frightened. All the French patrons in the restaurant seemed oblivious to the disturbance until I got up to go to the restroom. Immediately, the dog leaped out from under the table and went after my feet. In a second, it attacked my white, furry, knee-high goatskin boots. Apparently, throughout dinner, this giant dog had been watching them from under his table. Each time I moved either foot, the dog began growling. When I stood up to go to the WC, that was it. The dog pounced on my leg. Being visually impaired and in a dark restaurant, I had no idea what was happening and screamed with terror. That made the disinterested diners pay attention. Without a single word to us, the owner called the dog's name, and the sulking canine returned to its spot under the tablecloth. Perhaps they were embarrassed, but any gesture of concern in French would have calmed my pounding heart. So in that terrifying moment, I almost lost my temper. I lost a wad of goat hair off my boots, and I lost my appetite. And as we left the bistro and began walking toward our bus, a little rat-sized dog bit my leg. This time, one of my clients was videotaping the gorgeous snow-capped mountain when he heard my second scream. He lowered the camera just in time to catch the old French owner of the mangy mutt hitting my leg with her cane. I only wish I knew what she yelled in French when her feisty pooch bit my leg. Up to that point, I thought the problem was that French dogs hated my boots. However, a year later, in Cortina d'Ampezzo, Italy, our tour group stayed at the Hotel Vittoria Park and the owner of the hotel had a dog that absolutely loved my goat hair boots. I couldn't walk through the lobby without that dog thinking his lover was running away. I'd be walking toward the front door for a relaxing evening stroll, and the dog would come running from behind, wrap his two front paws around my knees, and wouldn't let go. When we returned from skiing, I would try to sneak through the lobby. If the dog's owner saw me, she would pull him into her office and shut the door. Unfortunately, the door was glass and when he saw me, he would begin howling and slam his body against the door. This one-sided love affair became the evening entertainment for my tour group. Our clients began waiting with their video cameras to record the dog's hilarious attempts at Amore. If I knew how to post a video, I would definitely post the evening I came into the lounge for a glass of vino. As I walked in, the dog leaped from behind the couch and attached himself to my right leg. I almost fell over. As I caught myself on the couch, would anyone help me? Of course not. Everyone was too busy laughing and filming the dog. I pushed him away, but he chased me around the couch three times and jumped onto my right leg. As soon as I pulled that leg away, he leaped onto the other leg. When I got them both free, he chased me around the room. When he leaped across the floor and wrapped all four legs around my knee and thigh, I dragged him across the floor, limping like the hunchback of Notre Dame. Did anyone try to help me get the lovesick dog off my leg? No, they were bent over laughing. Finally, this big dog knocked me over, and when I pulled myself up, I began pushing him off with my right arm. At this point, his face was in my elbow, and in a second, he wrapped himself around my arm and wouldn't let go. Amidst the laughter, I yelled, This dog is nuts! Hey, let go! This jacket cost a lot of money! After jerking my arm away once again, The dizzying race around the couch was on. When his mortified owner caught sight of that fiasco, I was in the lead, but in frustration and failure, she dragged him away to doggy jail. From that point on, I decided I would keep those goatskin ski boots out of Europe and relegate them to ski areas within the United States. In these ski resorts, well-behaved service dogs are allowed, and good little pet dogs stay at home.
1: Our Unforgettable France Experience by Katie Frederick with Vicky Preyen I began studying French in high school and quickly fell in love with the language. I continued to study it in college and decided to make it my minor. Early on, I knew I wanted to visit a French-speaking country. It was just a matter of when. One day in May 2015, Vicki forwarded to me an email from Minds Eye Travel about a river cruise in France. Minds Eye Travel is a company owned by Sue Bramhall, a visually impaired woman who started her company in order to provide tour opportunities for blind and visually impaired travelers. She finds trips and cruises, advertises, and makes arrangements for those who need a sighted guide. We published an article about Minds Eye Travel and the Viking River Cruise in the fall 2015 issue of the Ohio Connection. Vicki and I decided to make the most of our experience and added the three-day pre-cruise package. Prior to departing, we had to organize paperwork for ourselves and our guide dogs. Obtaining passports was a speedy process. Filling out the forms for the dogs' access took more time, however. We needed to obtain USDA certification, assuring French customs that our dogs are certified by a reputable school, that all vaccinations are up to date, and that the dogs have a registered chip. We also made sure to have with us our school ID with picture and date of acquisition. We flew from Columbus to Dulles and from there to Paris. Our flights were uneventful and transferring in DC, while an adventure requiring trips in more than ten elevators, a moving walkway, and a train, was okay thanks to the assistance we received. After landing in France, two young people met us and ushered us through a very deserted Charles de Gaulle airport. We were not even aware of when we passed through customs. Thanks to our wonderful assistance, collecting our luggage and securing a taxi to our hotel in Paris went without a hitch. My French-speaking skills were put to the test right away, giving the taxi driver our hotel's address and talking to hotel staff upon our arrival. After checking into our European-sized hotel room, think small and then smaller, we had lunch with a couple who were introduced to us by a mutual friend. After lunch, we took a tour of the Fragonard Perfume Museum and then had dinner with our tour group Thursday night. Friday morning we boarded a 15-passenger van to begin our Paris tour. The day's tour highlights included visits to the Eiffel Tower and Notre-Dame of Paris Cathedral. It's amazing to walk on marble floors worn by thousands of feet over hundreds of years. Saturday provided more sightseeing in Paris, ending with the Arc de Triomphe. Sunday we boarded the Viking River Rolf to begin the cruise. We spent part of the day learning the layout of the ship. Simple and practical, nice right angles. Monday, we walked through Marais, the Jewish quarter, a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood. Most streets are closed to cars and trucks. After lunch at a typical café, our program director treated us to a sampling of éclairs. As we slept Monday night, the ship sailed to the town of Vernon, I had no clue the ship was moving, gliding through the water with barely a bounce. Tuesday morning, we drove from Vernon to Giverny and toured the gardens and house of Claude Monet. In the afternoon, a walking tour around the charming town of Vernon, population 25,000, provided an opportunity to experience small-town French life and culture. After the guided tour, we explored on our own. Vicky and I, along with Stashek, our sighted guide, walked around a church whose construction started in the 1100s and took 600 years to complete due to various wars. The buildings in Vernon are a mix of old and modern because of destruction during World War II. We stopped at a little café to indulge in a real French treat, crepes. One simply cannot spend time in France without crepes. Wednesday morning was a leisurely sail along the Seine to Rouen, the city where Joan of Arc stood trial and was burned at the stake. During the afternoon, we strolled the cobbled streets of the city. I recall thinking as I walked along, I wonder who walked these same paths centuries before. Thursday, we took a two-hour bus ride to the beaches of Normandy. In addition to visiting Omaha Beach and the American Military Cemetery, we watched a brief film about the construction of the man-made harbor for the Battle of D-Day. It's incredible to think about the engineering challenges and accomplishments that made the D-Day landing possible. The American Cemetery contains 9,387 graves, four of which are women, three postal workers and a nurse. A wall containing the names of 1,557 missing, unknown soldiers is located in the Visitor's Center. A brief ceremony on the grounds honored the soldiers who gave their lives in France more than 70 years ago. There are few experiences in my life where seeing isn't necessary to fully appreciate them. Visiting the American Cemetery was one such experience. As we walked past rows and rows of graves, birds sang and we could hear the sea in the distance. It's a truly peaceful resting place for those who so valiantly gave their lives for our country during World War II. Friday morning, we cruised to the village of Les Andouilles. The afternoon travels took us on a walking tour of this small French river town where some of our group shopped and some of us visited another old church. My first trip to France was an unforgettable experience. Visiting sights, hearing sounds, and learning about cultures of northern France are memories I'll keep with me for a lifetime. My French came back to me as I used it on the ship, in shops, and on the street. The meals I enjoyed were out of this world. If only I could cook such flavorful dishes as the chef on board. Captions The travel group in front of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Katie Frederick, third from left, sports a hot pink jacket and is holding on to her guide dog's harness. Vicky Préhan stands next to Katie wearing a black jacket. Katie Frederick and Vicky Préhan enjoy crepes at a café in Vernon. Photo from The Ohio Connection, summer 2016. The travel group in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral Vicky Preyen and Katie Frederick stand side by side in the center of the group. A D-Day Museum at Normandy. The mural on the side of the building reads, The True Heroes Will Never Be Forgotten. My Trip to Germany by Jean Mann As a long-time member of ACB and somebody who has attended more than 30 conventions, I've had many experiences I would otherwise not have had. Visiting the Grand Canyon at sunrise, attending a concert by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in Temple Square, riding the cable cars in San Francisco, and visiting Graceland, to name a few. But the best trip I ever took was the week I spent in Germany as part of a delegation of ACB members. We were attending a leadership conference in Hartford, Connecticut in early spring of 1994. Oral Miller, who was our national representative at the time, took me aside and suggested that I apply for a passport if I didn't already have one, as I would probably be chosen to spend a week in Germany with him, President Leroy Saunders, and Dana Walker, who was on the BOP at the time. We would be hosted by two different organizations— One was the German Federation of the Blind, and I don't remember the name of the other one. I've long since lost my notes from the trip. In those days, delegations from other countries often visited the United States, and ACB occasionally was invited to send representatives to those countries. I never found out how I was chosen to go to Germany. I was on the board of directors at the time, and my claim to fame was running the convention office, which handled much of what the information desk does today, and took care of problems when the convention coordinator was out handling other matters. So, on a Saturday in early June, I boarded a plane and flew from Albany, New York, where I live, to Washington, D.C., where I met up with Oral. We boarded the next plane, and I started out in an aisle seat, with another woman sitting by the window. A flight attendant asked her if she'd mind moving so a mother and daughter could sit together. She hesitated, having already spread out papers to do some work, so I volunteered to move, which turned out to be a smart decision on my part. I ended up sitting in business class instead of coach. We flew to Heathrow Airport in England, where we met up with Leroy and Dana, and it was a short flight from there to Bonn, Germany, where we met up with our first hosts, with whom we spent the majority of the week. We were presented with Braille and print copies of the itinerary they had planned for us. They took us to our hotel where we settled in, and later went to dinner in a restaurant next door. For the next four days, they took us to various sites— A couple rehab facilities for the blind, the Cologne Cathedral, Beethoven's House, several historic churches and castles, and a resort where many blind Germans spent their vacations. I bought souvenirs every place we went. Having never been to Europe before, I wanted to bring something back for every family member and friend. I became known by our hosts as the shopper. They also presented us with gifts chocolates, the ones wrapped in paper contained whiskey, CDs of Beethoven's music, and a statue of the Cologne Cathedral. Our driver and one of our guides was a young man named Christian. He had been a foreign exchange student in the United States, and his English was excellent. In Germany, if you chose not to join the military, you were required to spend a year working for a service organization, and that's what he was doing. The hotel had been advised ahead of time of our visit and made sure our rooms were near each other. There was a continental breakfast each morning. The staff there learned right away what we liked and didn't like and made sure we had what we needed. We went out to dinner every night, except one with our hosts. Every meal started with wine or beer and ended with schnapps. I drank my first glass of Riesling wine, and it's still my favorite. One night, we were left to our own devices. We found a little restaurant near the hotel. We spoke no German, and our waiter spoke no English. So when he asked, pizza and beer, we said yes. We spent the last two days of our trip in Marburg, Germany, where we visited a combination school for the blind and store with all kinds of aids and appliances. If I remember correctly, Marburg is known all over Germany for its braille writers. Students at the school were high school students who were considered to be college material. We didn't visit with any of them as they didn't want to disturb their school routine, but we did see some of them in passing. We learned that they lived in co-ed houses on the campus. Very progressive for the times. We also learned that the city of Marburg was pretty much left alone during World War II, so it must have been the safest place to be in Germany. Everything in Marburg closed down at noon on Saturday, so we went to the offices of our hosts for lunch and talked about our two countries and our organizations. We ended our visit with a barbecue that night. The next day we went back to Bonn and flew home. I still have fond memories of that trip and still remember a few things I observed while we were there. When we visited the agencies for the blind, one of the most popular vocations being taught was massage therapy. And while everybody in the U.S. was using speech with their computers, everybody I saw in Germany was using a Braille display. We learned that blind German citizens were given monthly stipends by the German government from the time they were born. I don't remember the amount. We found that drinks, except for coffee and tea, were served at room temperature. Coke, beer, everything. And the glasses in our hotel rooms were meant to hold our toothbrushes, not for drinking water. It was hot that week and we were thirsty, so one day while in Bonn, we went to the offices of our hosts and they served us ice-cold apple juice. Nothing ever tasted so good. As I said before, I'm not sure how I got chosen to take that trip, but I'm sure glad I did. Sometimes in life, wonderful surprises you don't expect come your way, and that was one of them. So thanks, ACB. I've never been on a cruise, so if you ever need somebody to represent our organization on one of those, I'm available.
2: An Anarchist's Handy Cassette by Peter Heide It had been a long week. Our church's 2003 National Youth Gathering in Atlanta, Georgia, had come to an end. The world was still on alert following 9-11 two years earlier, and the auditorium where we gathered, built for the 1996 Olympics, was a reminder of the security issues surrounding that event. So it was not surprising that security was tight when 25,000 young people and their advisors showed up for a four-day conference. This included security guards in the Marriott, Atlanta, because there were so many minor guests in the hotel. The night before we were to leave, two young men decided to drop firecrackers down the center atrium from the 17th floor, putting everyone on high alert. It sounded like an automatic weapon, but it was only 16 black cats. The police did not arrest the two because no one was hurt, but the youth got a high-priced trip home at their parents' expense and warned not to come back to Georgia. Everyone's nerves were on edge. We were overstimulated and overtired. The next day I shepherded my six young people into the airport, and after checking our bags, we headed toward TSA. Just before sending my carry-on through the scanner, I remembered that my pocket knife was in my dop kit, which was packed inside my carry-on. I had forgotten to put the knife in my suitcase. It had been a long-time companion, and I was going to miss it, but I knew that TSA would now confiscate it. I was too tired to care. While there, bells started ringing like someone had hit the jackpot. Then two officers asked me to step aside. Was this my bag? Yes. Please come with us. Each of the officers took one of my arms and started walking me across the hall. I turned to my young people and said, Don't worry, I'll be back soon. In the meantime, I thought, This seems a bit much for a pocket knife. My escorts were polite but firm, as they led me to a room with a table and a few chairs. I was asked to face the wall and put my hands on it, and then to spread my feet shoulder-wide. After being frisked, the officers asked me why I was in Atlanta. Where had I been? Where was I going? What business did I have in Chicago? I told them that I was a pastor in the Lutheran Church, I was in Atlanta for the youth gathering, and I was taking my young people home. I was preaching in Hanover Park on Sunday, and I was looking forward to a few hours of sleep on the flight home because of a disturbance during the night. They asked where I had stayed. I told them. The officers asked how well I knew the young men who had thrown the firecrackers. Had I given the firecrackers to them earlier in the evening before they had thrown them into the atrium? I told them that I didn't know the young men. I wouldn't have had any interaction with them except that I was on hall duty several floors below. They asked me about my politics. Did I have any issues with the government or the airline I was flying on? I said, I'm sorry, but it's a mistake, thinking it was just a pocket knife. Then one officer asked, Why are you carrying explosives in your carry-on? What? What are you talking about? I have no explosives. It appears that you are misrepresenting yourself, said the other officer. From our scan of your bag, we suspect that you are carrying what could be a pipe bomb and several blocks of plastic explosive as well as a triggering mechanism. I have no idea what you are talking about. I was really getting scared. After several more very uncomfortable minutes, almost a half hour that felt like a lifetime, a new ATF agent entered the room, and asked me to explain the items in my carry-on. I looked with amazement at my APH Handy Cassette Recorder, three cassette talking books, and my cane. Even though my eyesight was pretty good at that time, my night vision was very marginal, and I used my cane for safety and security. Because of my eye condition, my eye muscles did not track well, so I needed talking books. And the APH Handy Cassette? Well, it was small, It was lightweight, and even with the underwater sounds, it made reading faster. It took another five minutes to explain, but I finally made the plane my young people were on, and we all made it to Chicago without my cane blowing up. Still, I couldn't believe that they didn't know what a white cane was, and that they didn't trust the imprinted label that said Property of the United States Government on the mailing cases of the books. At home that night, as I unpacked my bags, I opened my DOP kit. I found my pocket knife on top of my pill case. Apparently, they were so concerned about my explosives that they failed to notice my longtime friend. To take out or not to take out? That is the question. By Janet Danola Parmeter. Reprinted from the Winter 2019 GCB Digest. When our five-and-a-half-year-old grandson Tyler arrived at our home, he shocked us with an extraordinary announcement. He firmly professed, My name is not Tyler, it's really Chris. A bit taken aback, I said, Okay, Chris, now let's just have a nice day together. This meant a fun-filled day with everyone who lived with us, including Tyler's 89-year-old great-great-auntie Rena, 82-year-old great-grandma Nonna Alice, his 84-year-old great-grandfather Papa John, his very patient grandfather Pop-Pop Keith, and me, his let's-play-hide-and-seek Grandma Janet. Tyler thinks he will always win at hide-and-seek because Grandma is blind. He always forgets two important things. Because this is Grandma's house, she knows the best places to hide and how well Grandma can hear where he runs to hide. To begin our afternoon of entertainment, Keith and I planned to take out the whole gang for lunch. The Loganville IHOP seemed like a doable choice, but could taking out three octogenarians and a feisty five-year-old really be a relaxing afternoon? Keith and I thought it was possible. The first step was to get into the restaurant. As we slowly entered the IHOP, Keith and I tried to hold on to the whole tribe while simultaneously opening the heavy glass double doors. Unfortunately, my dad, who always wants to be first, barreled past everyone, knocked Mom into Auntie Rena, and Auntie Rena into my white cane, Tyler, and me. After looking like some comedy skit, we all made it inside. Before being seated, I quietly informed the hostess not to give Auntie Rena a menu, because if she read it, she wouldn't eat a thing. Auntie Rena still thinks it is somewhere around 1940 and if food costs more than a dollar, she refuses to order anything except water. She is shocked when she sees menu prices and always complains. Oh my, how can they charge that much for a hot dog? Having devoted many decades teaching the Bible for $25 a month, she watched every single penny, and still does. Compounding that with her phobia about eating and getting fat, feeding Aunt Irina has always been a chore. Since her siblings and mother were all overweight, even with her tiny 110-pound body, she was, and still is, obsessed about becoming fat. For a while I sneaked her a children's menu, and she ate fine. Then she saw the comment about the menu being for those 10 years old and under, and refused to eat anything off that menu. Fortunately, after a clever waitress remarked, "'Oh no, miss, that also means 10 years under 100 years old,' She once again began eating from the children's menu. Immediately after the hostess sat our group down, Dad called the waitress to the table and ordered his lunch. Mom took the menu from the waitress's hand and began reading it. Dad looked at Mom and said, Alice, the waitress wants your order. Mom never took her eyes off the menu and with an irritable response said, John, I just got the menu. I'm reading it. The server replied, No problem, I'll come back. Instantly, Dad, who was always running the show, put his hand up in a stop position and said, No, wait. In a frustrated tone, he complained, Alice, it's the same thing all the time. You know what's on the menu. Just order. Mom, who loves to read everything, replied, I like to read it anyway. I'm not ready. The server looked down, not knowing whether to leave or stay. Having heard this same conversation my entire life, I quickly added, Excuse me, we're not ready either, so could you please come back in a few minutes? Grateful and relieved, she rushed off as Dad shook his head and let out a huge sigh. With all this going on, everyone was distracted and didn't see Auntie Rena grab the regular menu until we heard her muttering to herself, Forget this! Who would pay that for this stuff? We all looked over just in time to see her throw the menu on the table and turn her head in disgust. Making the quick switch, I handed her the children's placemat menu and whispered, "'Here, Auntie Rena, this one has cheaper prices,' and slid the other one off the table. In a second, she pushed away the paper menu with the games and coloring pictures on it, then angrily said, "'This says for one to twelve years old.'" Remembering the line from the other waitress, I confidently added, "'Oh, this menu is also good for someone one to twelve years under one hundred years old.'" Once again, that worked and she ordered French toast. After the food fiasco ended, I played giant tic-tac-toe with Tyler while Mom called the server back so many times the waitress almost wore out her shoes. First it was, "'Excuse me, may I have another napkin?' Then, "'Excuse me, do you have another type of syrup?' Then, "'Excuse me, could I have this, and could you please change this spoon?' Finally Dad said, "'Alice, you are going to drive the lady nuts.' and Mom replied with her standard comment. Whatever! Oblivious to the strained conversations, Keith and Tyler colored pictures on the paper placemat as I perused our disconnected group and cheerfully asked, Is everyone having fun yet? With the chaos of getting everyone into the restaurant, ordering, eating, and paying for the meal, Keith and I were a tad stressed. The next step was to maneuver these three octogenarians and our little man back home. As soon as we stepped outside the restaurant doors, it poured. Holding tight to Tyler, we trailed Aunt Irina, who seemed entirely baffled by the raindrops. Half under her breath, she mumbled, "Oh my, oh my, look at this. I'm getting wet." She tried to avoid the raindrops by vigorously swirling her arms around, trying to push them away. Meanwhile, my father raced past Aunt Irina so he could be first to the car. Now, annoyed that he had to wait, he leaned against the car. Keith tried to catch up to Dad after paying the check. When Keith finally reached the van, he could not get the door open fast enough for Dad. As he struggled to step off what seemed to be a Mount Everest-sized curb, he held onto to the mirror, which folded in toward the car, and he almost fell down. After regaining his balance, he huffed and puffed while complaining about the still-locked door. Pulling up the rear was my mother. That day I forgot the walker. She only had her extra cane and my left arm. However, the hand of my shared left arm also firmly held Tyler, who desperately tried to escape the grandma grip. Unfortunately, I could not use my other hand to grasp Tyler because I used my right hand to hold onto my white cane. Slowly shuffling toward our parking space, I attempted to prevent two canes and three humans from becoming a tangled fivesome. Tyler, Mom. Both Kane's and I finally made it to the van. After doing a quick mom handoff to Keith, I ran around the van with Tyler, helped Dad climb into the middle row behind the driver, and still never let go of Tyler's slippery hand. In the meantime, Aunt Irina pulled herself onto the middle row of the van, stared out the window, and did this pretend whistling thing she does prior to having a seizure. After a second, she pushed the button to open the door and jumped out and into the van many times. At some point, Keith told her to stay inside the van. As she tried to climb in, she pulled the handle and the door began to close. Frantically, I sprang over Dad and pushed the button to reopen it as Auntie Rena yelled at the door, Hey, hey, now you just stop that! Amidst all the commotion, as my mother partially climbed onto the front seat, she gasped for breath. Keith, with his feet solidly planted, gave a heave-ho and pushed Mom onto the front seat. With half her body still hanging out of the car, he lifted her right leg, squeezed her bottom onto the seat, and slammed the door. Now Keith and I did a quick Tyler handoff, and Keith carried him to the back of the van. Since Tyler could not pass these three exhausted elderly obstacles to get a seat, the only entry was through the back hatch. As Keith lifted it and prepared to slide Tyler and his car seat in from the rear of the van, Aunt Irina began coming out of a seizure. Quickly, Keith shoved the car seat onto the back third row and plopped Tyler into the van. Because Aunt Irina was always intimidated by Dad, she decided to move as far away from him as possible. In a flash, she crawled to the third back row alongside the car seat and proceeded to fasten her seatbelt. At the same time, of course, she sat on Tyler's belt, which Keith needed to lock in the car seat. Keith struggled as he stretched over the trunk space and back seat to unfasten Rena's belt and free the other seat belt. After finding the other strap, he clicked in the car seat, placed Tyler in his chair, locked his belt, slammed the hatch, dropped into the driver's seat, sat back, and just stared ahead. No one moved or said a word as we all waited for Keith to begin driving. Still motionless, with closed eyes, and his head pressed against the headrest, I wondered if he fell asleep. Surprisingly, even Tyler did not utter one single word, so with our family securely strapped in, Keith shook his head and robotically began chauffeuring our tired family home. Wasn't this our fun day of taking them out? Still silent, Tyler looked around from one elderly person to another and methodically analyzed the past thirty minutes, from exiting the IHOP until now. In a still abnormally quiet car, Tyler looked around at this elderly entourage and with a smile finally announced his brilliant deduction. Grandma, do you know why it's really good to be five or even six years old? Curiously, I responded, No, little man, I don't. Tell Grandma why. Looking down at his legs, he firmly patted his thighs with both hands and proudly answered, Because my legs are good, and I can walk. So, to take out or not to take out? That was definitely the question. So what is our answer? After analyzing those five fun-filled hours, Keith and I decided the next time we choose to do a takeout day, it will be the traditional way. Pick up the food and peacefully bring it home to the family. Accessibility and Video Games, All Ages Gaming for People with Disabilities, reprinted from Verizon.com, tinyurl.com numerals 55 VW numeral 9 BBH. By definition, accessibility means the degree to which something is reachable. For people living with disabilities, accessibility doesn't just mean how reachable something is. Oftentimes, the level of accessibility can define their ability to interact with and participate in certain activities or events, including entertainment. According to the CDC, 61 million Americans are living with disabilities, which makes accessibility and entertainment a huge priority for a large group of people. Increases in awareness of accessibility issues in gaming have inspired innovations in video game creation and assistive technology to allow individuals to customize their game experience to their needs. Benefits of gaming for people with disabilities. Video games have evolved significantly since their debut in 1958. This evolution has changed the way people interact with gaming and the way that gaming interacts with people. Now, people with disabilities are discovering the self-care benefits of video games, which can be both mental and physical. Cognitive and Developmental Benefits You may have heard differing opinions on the mental benefits or detriments that video games cause. According to Dr. Romeo Vitelli, Psychology Today, media often casts video games in a negative light. However, video games have changed in recent years to become more complex, realistic, and social in nature. Vitelli says researchers are shifting away from the narrative that video games inspire violent or problematic behavior, and are studying the real, long-lasting cognitive benefits of gaming. According to Dr. Vitelli, these benefits may include improved problem-solving, enhanced spatial awareness, greater neural processing and efficiency, enhanced attention functioning, improved creativity, increased flow, relaxation, and social connectivity. These benefits can be useful in a wide variety of situations, such as managing dyslexia, and even treating amblyopia, or lazy eye. Therapeutic Benefits Researchers from Electronic Entertainment Design and Research and the University of California, San Diego, point out that gaming can also have several therapeutic benefits for those with different needs and in different situations. These benefits may include distraction from pain, relief from boredom due to immobility, reduction of anxiety and hyperactivity, Improvement of mood and reduction of sadness. Many of these benefits are similar to those that come from hobbies like sports. Some individuals with disabilities may not be able to participate in various types of sports, so, esports are an option that may help them to feel included and reap the social, mental, and physical benefits of gaming. Educational benefits With rising trends in remote and online learning, Video games have not just been used as therapeutic tools, but as educational tools. According to EdSource, games in the classroom have helped students of all ages connect to their lessons in tangible ways. Games have been designed to teach all kinds of lessons for all levels of education, including, but not limited to, math, programming, reading and comprehension, spelling, history, geography, physics. Sandbox games or video games with open worlds such as Minecraft, are also being adapted as educational tools. Because video games are adaptable, they can be tailored to students with different needs or abilities. Social Benefits Developing good social skills is an important part of both personal and professional development. Social and pro-social activities are an intrinsic part of the gaming experience with gamers rapidly learning social skills that could generalize to social relationships in the real world, says Dr. Vitelli. He cites a study by Isabella Granik, Ph.D., of Ratbout University, Nijmegen, in the Netherlands. Granik's research found that over 70% of gamers play with friends. Granik also found that playing simple games such as Angry Birds can improve players' moods. Gaming, especially online gaming and streaming, may help provide a sense of community and give people with different needs an opportunity to socialize and even earn supplemental income. Due to verbal processing or social impairments, face-to-face socialization can be difficult or daunting for some people with disabilities. This is where games with chat rooms and chat applications designed to work in-game like Discord can create opportunities for socialization for people with impairments. Socializing through online gaming is also an accessible option for people who may spend a significant amount of time in the hospital or on bed rest due to their disability. This can decrease feelings of loneliness and improve their mood, which can even assist healing and recovery. Video games as sensory play. Sensory play is an activity that stimulates any of the five senses. Research shows that sensory play builds neural pathways, which can enhance complex learning ability and attention span. Sensory play is important for young children, children with disabilities, and even seniors to hone their cognitive skills. There have been video games designed to stimulate the senses, which can be a beneficial aspect of sensory play. Some sensory video games include Disney's Fantasia Music Evolved, Fruit Ninja Connect, Just Dance, Sesame Street, Ready, Set, Grover, Candy Crush. Many of these games are available on mobile devices and consoles, so they are accessible where you need them. Some sensory games, like Just Dance, are even multiplayer, which allows the whole family to join in for quality playtime. Adaptive and Assistive Technology for Gamers Accessibility in gaming goes beyond game design and into gaming accessories. Hardware, software, and other assistive technology can make gaming more accessible for people with disabilities. Assistive technology not only improves the accessibility of gaming, but it gives people with disabilities the freedom to customize their gaming experience without having to wait for the developers. This can open up a wider variety of games for people with impairments. Adaptive Controllers and Wearables Adaptive controllers and wearables, such as headsets, can help gamers with disabilities control and communicate better while gaming. You can get a variety of controllers that suit your specific needs. For example, Logitech offers the Logitech G Adaptive Gaming Kit, featuring plug-and-play control buttons and game boards in various sizes that can suit different needs. Gaming wearables, such as headsets and VR rigs, are an evolving and exciting part of modern gaming. Accessibility in gaming wearables can be as simple as wireless headsets, which can allow people who use wheelchairs or mobility aids freedom of movement without losing audio connection to their consoles. Conversely, it can be as advanced as adaptive gear such as the JOWS Plus, which is a mounted controller set operated entirely by the head to cater to gamers with limited or no movement. Studio and Developer Player Accessibility Guidelines Developers and video game studios may also offer some accessibility guidelines to provide tips for individuals with disabilities looking to adapt their system or game. These guidelines may include how to turn on accessibility features, such as text-to-speech, or how to report an accessibility problem. Some of the studios that currently have accessibility guides posted include the following EA, PlayStation, Xbox, Blizzard software there is a variety of adaptive technology that has been or can be installed on an array of gaming devices and consoles often at little or no cost these software updates can include but aren't limited to the following talk to text visual assistance larger subtitles technology for the deaf and hard of hearing colorblind friendly menu options scalable haptic feedback you can find how to turn on these options in the options menu of your game or the accessibility guidelines mentioned above. An accessibility resource center may also be able to help connect you with these software solutions as well as help you troubleshoot any issues or answer questions you may have. The future of accessible gaming. Accessibility is becoming a bigger focus in the gaming industry with big games such as Naughty Dog's The Last of Us Part Two offering over 60 accessibility options pre-built into the game's options. For a long time, gamers were having to make accessibility modifications for their games. However, with updates to the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act CVAA, the landscape of accessibility compliance in game production is beginning to change that for the better. Accessibility in games is even surpassing studios with the International Game Developers Association focusing on U.S. legislation centered on accessibility in all advanced communication software, such as gaming consoles.
0: Here and There, edited by Cynthia G. Hawkins. The announcement of products and services in this column does not represent an endorsement by the American Council of the Blind, its officers, or staff. Listings are free of charge for the benefit of our readers. The ACBE Forum cannot be held responsible for the reliability of the products and services mentioned. To submit items for this column, send a message to slovering at acb.org or phone the National Office at 1-800-424-8666 and leave a message in Sharon Lovering's mailbox. Information must be received at least two months ahead of publication date. Accessibility Award Winners Helen Keller Services Accessibility Awards recognize companies, nonprofit organizations, and individuals doing work to support the deaf, blind, blind, or low vision communities. The recipients of this year's Accessibility Awards are Navalens. The company has developed a system using your mobile camera to scan and get the necessary information contextualized through the Navalens accessible QR code to enhance accessibility for visually impaired individuals, including those who are deafblind. Kellogg's This company has incorporated Navalens codes on the packaging of some of its most iconic cereals in the U.S. The technology allows blind, partially sighted, and deafblind people to find the boxes from a few feet away and hear information on the products using the Navalens app on their smartphones. Procter & Gamble P&G actively promotes accessibility and inclusivity in their products and work environment. Their commitment extends to the deaf-blind community, including hair care brand Herbal Essences, one of the pioneers in the accessibility field, adding raised stripes to their shampoo bottles and raised circles to their conditioner bottles. Netflix. Through expanding audio description and subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing, to be available in more languages and in more films and series— Netflix is working to create an entertainment experience for everyone, regardless of language, device, connectivity, or ability, and connect members to their next favorite story. NV Access Through their free and open-source screen reader, NVDA, blind and deafblind individuals are empowered worldwide. Their software is available in 175 countries, 55 languages, and is used by 250,000 people worldwide. Compass 365 As a Microsoft Gold partner and employee-owned, they had the opportunity to make HKS intranet accessible at Compass 365, transforming organizations using SharePoint, Microsoft 365. Helen Keller Services benefited directly when Compass helped make HKS's new intranet, Helen's Hub, accessible to blind and deafblind employees. Numa Solutions Android App Updated The Android app for Cero has been updated to version 3.2.0. For more details, visit numasolutions.com slash products slash Cero. P-N-E-U-M-A-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S dot com slash products slash S-E-R-O. Touch of Genius Prize Winner the 2023 winner of the Louis Braille Touch of Genius Prize for Innovation is Gregory Hargrove and the team of inventors who created the Page Connect. What is Page Connect? It's an adaptation for the traditional Perkins Brailler that replaces the base of the Brailler with a sturdy printed circuit board. This board has its own Wi Fi with sensors that convert the physical keystrokes on the Brailler to a digital output that can be read on a phone, tablet, or laptop instantly. Lighthouse Guild College Scholarship Recipients Fifteen college and graduate school students will receive a $10,000 scholarship in recognition of their academic accomplishments and merit. Since 2005, the Guild has awarded more than $2.7 million in scholarships to worthy students across the country. The Lighthouse Guild 2023 scholarship recipients and their schools are Undergraduate Scholarships Skylar Adad Danville, California, Boise State University. Kenny Calhoun, Aldi, Virginia, College of William and Mary. Matthew Cho, New York, New York, Marymount Manhattan College. Holly Connor, Clayton, Missouri, Webster University. Jack Freeberg, Volan, South Dakota, University of Notre Dame. Julia LeGrand, Grand Rapids, Michigan, New England Conservatory. Haley Nisperly, Wheeling, West Virginia, University of Charleston. Caden Rebke, Gypsum, Colorado, Colorado School of Mines. Ashley Rogers, Duncannon, Pennsylvania, Lebanon Valley College. Charlotte Wismer, Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, Rochester Institute of Technology. Graduate Scholarships. Trisha Kulkarni, Dayton, Ohio, Stanford University. Jack McPadden, Winchester, Massachusetts, Spalding University. Emily Racinos, New York, New York, Syracuse University College of Law. Elizabeth Rouse, Durant, Iowa, University of Minnesota School of Law. Mariam Abdul-Sattar, San Diego, California, San Diego State University. NBP's online store is moving. National Brill Press's online store is moving to Shopify. The old online store will be retired very soon, and any existing NBP accounts will retire with it. Please note, if you have purchased any downloads, log into nbp.org, navigate to the Accounts, My Downloads page, and download and store all of your purchases. After the old store is retired, you will not have access to these downloads. The new store is at shop.nbp.org. If you have questions, email orders at nbp.org, or call 617-266-6160, extension 520. ACB Officers President Deb Cook-Lewis, First Term, 2023 1131 Liberty Drive, Clarkston, Washington, 99403 First Vice President Ray Campbell Second term, 2023. 216 Prestwick Road, Springfield, Illinois, 62702-3330. Second vice president, vacant. Secretary Denise Colley, second term, 2023. 26131 Travis Brook Drive, Richmond, Texas, 77406-3990. Treasurer, David Trot, Final term, 2023. 1018 East Street South, Talladega, Alabama, 35160. Immediate past president, Kim Charlson. 57 Grandview Avenue, Watertown, Massachusetts, 02472. ACB Board of Directors. Christopher Bell, Pittsboro, North Carolina. First term, 2024. Jeff Bishop, Kirkland, Washington. Second term, 2024. Donna Brown, Romney, West Virginia. First term, 2024. Gabriel Lopez Cafati, Miami Lakes, Florida. First term, 2026. Terry Pacheco, Silver Spring, Maryland. First term, 2026. Doug Powell, Falls Church, Virginia. Second term 2024. Rachel Schroeder, Springfield, Illinois, first term 2026. Kenneth Semyon Sr. Beaumont, Texas, first term twenty twenty four. Connie Sims, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, first term twenty twenty six. Jeff Tom, Sacramento, California, second term twenty twenty six. ACB Board of Publications, Katie Frederick, Chair, Worthington, Ohio, first term, 2023. Cheryl Cummings, Seattle, Washington, first term, 2023. Zelda Gephardt, Edgley, North Dakota, second term, 2024. Penny Reeder, Montgomery Village, Maryland, third term, 2024. Gachet Wells, Jacksonville, Florida, first term, 2024. Accessing your ACB, Braille, and eForums. The ACB eForum may be accessed by email on the ACB website via download from the webpage in Word, plain text, or Braille-ready file or by phone at 518-906-1820. To subscribe to the email version, contact Sharon Lovering, S-L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G, at acb.org. The ACB Braille Forum is available by mail, in braille, large print, NLS style digital cartridge, and via email. It is also available to read or download from ACB's webpage and by phone 518 906 1820. Subscribe to the podcast versions from your second generation Victor Reader Stream or from https://pinecast.com/slash slash, slash, feed/slash. ACB dash rail dash forum dash and dash E dash forum.